Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include rent-to-income ratios across America, my interview with MBA's Justin Wiseman on recent issues MBA has commented on and top regulatory-slash-enforcement items that the industry should be aware of, and how lower volatility is impacting mortgage rates. Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, Richie May. Richie May is a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services to the mortgage industry for almost four decades. Among many awards, Richie May has been named a top 100 firm twice and is known in the market for their education and contributions to the mortgage industry. They don't just hire from the mortgage industry, they have the experts who build it. To experience how Richie May can help you transform your mortgage business, visit RichieMay.com. There's a definite shift going on in banks as continued layoff rumors in jumbo and portfolio divisions are rampant. At the other end of the job chain, people's circumstances about how they entered our business are often fortuitous or interesting. A good conversation topic at mortgage gatherings is how someone got into the business. Another good conversation topic is how LOs use rent and rent increases to prompt buyers. Since 2009, rent prices have grown by 60% or more in seven U.S. cities. San Jose leads the way at 85%, with Denver, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Austin all at 60% or greater. Rent prices are also rising faster than incomes, which forces tenants to shell out a greater share of their wages on rent. At 28.5%, Miami has the highest rent-to-income ratio of the 50 largest U.S. cities, while Cincinnati has the lowest at 15.5%. The rent-to-income ratio has declined in only four cities over the last decade. Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, and Providence, Rhode Island. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome to the show MBA's Justin Wiseman to talk about recent issues MBA has commented on and top regulatory and enforcement items that the industry should be aware of. He leads MBA's regulatory policy team and oversees the association's work on legal issues and trends, agency rulemakings, and regulatory compliance. Since joining MBA in 2012, he served in various roles, such as Associate Regulatory Counsel, Director of Loan Administration Policy, Associate Vice President and Managing Regulatory Counsel, and overseeing the association's legal and regulatory issues for loan production, servicing, pending rules, and legislation. He also leads the Amicus Brief Program. Prior to MBA, he clerked for the Federal District Court in the Middle District of Tennessee and worked with the Center for Strategic and International Studies on European and Transatlantic Security Issues. I want to start by talking about you a little bit before we get into MBA and, and CFPB. What's your background and, and what's your current role at MBA? Sure. So uh, I'm a lawyer, although I did work at a think tank dealing with some national security issues before law school, which I think provides a general framework to think about policy, although not terribly applicable to the mortgage industry. Uh, after graduating from law school, I clerked with a federal judge in Nashville, Tennessee, and then basically started at MBA and have held various roles there from working on the loan admin side to the legal issues portfolio. And now I lead our residential policy team. And how did how did you actually find MBA? I mean, the mortgage industry, it's not like there's a defined career path for getting into it like there are for uh, certain college majors. 
So I'm from DC originally. I mean, I'm a DC native and I moved back and it was sort of a little bit of serendipity. NBA was looking for someone and I was very focused on doing something in the policy realm. Uh, and this was right as Dodd-Frank was being passed. So I'm also attracted to a challenge. And it certainly was an interesting and challenging time to do policy, particularly legal work and policy in the mortgage industry. Well, it's certainly a challenging time, at least for originators right now in the mortgage industry. And, and I brought you on here because I want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on at MBA. So can you fill listeners in on some of the recent issues MBA has focused on or commented on? Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. And uh, being respectful of time, I won't just go down the laundry list of things we've been doing. And I'll highlight a few key things, right? We've been very engaged on fair lending, appraisal regulations, the need to maintain appraisal independence, uh, which you see, I think, kind of eroding in some of the regulatory proposals that have come out, the need to uh, reform the servicing rules, commenting on the loan originator compensation rule and response to a request from comment for the CFPB, but also being laser focused on making sure the Bureau and other regulatory agencies and the GSEs, even though they're not regulatory agencies, are aware of how their actions are impacting a market that, to your point, is in a state of uh, flux and transition. We've been very uh, engaged with FHFA around uh, what we think may be inappropriate use of the repurchase framework by the GSEs, as well as other issues like the FSOC liquidity proposal that came out around designation of non-bank servicers. So I threw a ton at you, and I know we'll dive into some of it as we go along, but you know, anything you hear sort of pique your interest that I should expand upon? Well, I'm, I'm certainly hearing the same things about repurchases, LO comp, uh, things of that nature. I, I guess I want to ask you, what should be top of mind for lenders uh, as as we move forward here, kind of some of the top regulatory or, or enforcement issues that, that people should kind of keep on their radar? So that, that's a great question. And I think it's important to understand sort of the regulatory and enforcement environment moves alongside the market, but isn't necessarily shaped by the exact uh, contours of what's happening in the market. So fair lending is and continues to be a huge Biden administration regulatory priority. And it's a different theory of fair lending than we may have been used to in the past, right? Previously, redlining, as most people understood it, was literally that, right? You draw a red line on a map, and usually a bank says, you know, we'll put our branches and lend on the left side of this red line, but we won't do any lending in communities on the right side. And that's historically been the theory of redlining. Now we're seeing the CFPB pursue a different theory. Uh, it's based usually first on Humda data and then other sort of information that they can gather during the discovery process. But it's sort of says you have an affirmative obligation to market and or do outreach in communities where you aren't. And if you don't have the hum to data to prove that, uh, the Bureau has been pretty aggressive in doing examinations and we've started to see bringing enforcement cases around that. So that's something people certainly need to be, I think, aware of. And then the other thing I would say is, is we're beginning to hear uh, the you know, states and others are starting to look a little more at LOCOM. It's taken a long time. We haven't had enforcement action in that space since 2015. And you know, I have no knowledge that one's coming right down the pike. But I do know there's a little more focus on that now than there's been in the past. So you opened a can of worms there by mentioning the CFPB. And they were in the news big time last week for finding Bank of America for uh, charging fees, opening fake accounts, those those sorts of things, which is kind of a repeat of what Wells Fargo did. Uh, so let's talk about the CFPB for a second. How would you compare or contrast the CFPB under Director Chopra uh, versus previous leadership, uh, such as Director Cordray? 
That's that's an interesting question. Although you brought up the the recent press release from the bureau, I would really caution people when you read bureau press releases to understand that that is one side of the story, right? And they're often first in the public. So I I haven't dove into that. It's not a mortgage case, but I I always have a quasi skeptical eye when you read how the bureau describes uh, the conduct that they're enforcing against in press releases, and then even what they say in their consent order. So that that's kind of a word to the wise first point. To your point about this bureau being different, I think you've put your finger on something. It does feel different, uh, certainly than Director Cordray. Director Cordray, partially by virtue of being the first director and having a huge rulemaking burden, I guess you could call it, dropped on him from Dodd-Frank, was much more focused on rulemaking, uh, I would say development of the rules, than we've seen Director Cordray. There's not been a ton of rulemaking under the uh, Chopra administration. And I think that could be a natural outgrowth, first of the court decisions that say the Bureau is now explicitly a political actor. And by political actor, I don't necessarily mean Republican or Democrat, but I do mean part of the president's administration. That is pretty clear now that the Bureau serves the pleasure pleasure of the president and therefore is more a part of advancing the president's agenda than if it was notionally independent. But I also think just by style, Director Chopra is more inclined to use the bully pulpit, press releases, his comments, to try and sort of move markets and achieve desired outcomes with regard to conduct than rulemaking. And I could be wrong on that, but that's a view from seeing the tools they've sort of chosen to employ in the past 18 months or so. Well, as a quick follow-up to that, the the CFPB has met some... Uh, legislative resistance, shall we say, whether it's uh, the Townstone financial case uh, where where it was ruled that they kind of overstepped their boundaries, or or we've seen that there's a a challenge to the constitutionality that's going to be, uh, the the Supreme Court's going to take the case. Do you think this? they hear this, they get this feedback, they hear it, it changes any of their actions, and they say maybe we should tread a little more lightly, or that's not the way that they think? It certainly does not seem to be the case, right? Uh, they, I guess you could argue that after PHH, there was less of a focus on RESPA and Section 8 and things like that because of what I think was a, a pretty comprehensive rebuke from the D.C. Circuit, at least to how they handled that case. But no, I, I don't think they materially changed their behavior based on some of these decisions. Now, the outcome, particularly of the Supreme Court case, uh, around the constitutionality of their funding through the appropriations that they've been set up with. That that will change their behavior tremendously, potentially, if the court comes out a certain way on that. But I, I think it's sort of full steam ahead as far as we can see. And I, I don't know that they sort of trimmed their sails or changed course based either on that decision or the Townsend case you referenced, which is an interesting one as well. It's an excellent segue from you because MBA recently filed an amicus brief on the Supreme Court case. Uh, and it's it's all about the Bureau's appropriations funding. you talk a little bit about the brief and the importance of MBA's litigation or amicus program? Sure. So I'll talk about the brief first. Uh, this is a really important case. If you've been following the CFPB since its inception, you'll remember that it was set up with two primary mechanisms to keep it independent from what uh, the people that founded it saw as undue congressional interference. The first was that the director could only be removed for cause. And that was struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional in a Salia law case, as I was talking a little bit earlier about the bureau now being under the president. And then the second piece is, and I I won't go into 
deep detail, but essentially the Bureau is not subject to yearly appropriations like a lot of other agencies. They can go to the Federal Reserve and ask the Federal Reserve for money out of a defined percentage of sort of the Fed's operating income. That has also been challenged as unconstitutional. And as the theory goes, you know, that seeds too much control from Congress. So if we all remember you know, 10th grade civics, at least that's when I took it, you know, Congress controls the power of the purse. And this gives too much power to the CFPB, uh, an administer, a federal administrative agency under the president, to sort of set its own budget. And then Congress doesn't have enough control, and that violates constitutional separation of powers. Uh, I'm glossing over the argument, but I think that's the key part of it. And the fear we have at MBA is that argument, if applied to other rules that the bureaus made that we may not like, but governs our uh, industry, could in, in theory imperil those rules, right? Someone could, and there's a lot of legal nuance, so I'm not saying that they'd be successful, but you could say, for example, hey, the QM rule was also promulgated similar to the rule at issue here with unconstitutional funding. So we filed an amicus brief in that case saying uh, to the court, not that the Bureau is constitutional or not, we didn't take a position on those issues, but we did say if you reach the uh, conclusion the Bureau is unconstitutional, you need to rule in a way that is very careful and respects a lot of the previous work the Bureau has done, because a broad ruling that isn't limited could cause a lot of undue and unwanted chaos in the mortgage markets. And, and as you mentioned earlier, I think now is probably the last time we'd want to see a lot of legal disruption and chaos in the market. So that's the case, uh, CFSA Financial versus CFPB, that we filed the very big amicus brief in. And I, I encourage folks to watch the court as they take it up next term. You asked about the importance of the amicus program. If I were to boil it down, uh, there's three branches of government, right? Everyone remembers the first two, the executive and the uh, congressional, but the judicial branch is important, and I would argue probably increasingly important. So MBA thinks it's vital that we represent our members' interests in important cases that can shape and develop the law, which is why we have a pretty robust amicus brief program and file briefs in cases like this one, as well as other federal district and appellate court cases. Yeah, I actually asked about the amicus brief, not the amicus brief. So if you could talk about that. That would actually be no. I'm kidding. Yeah, uh, no. Well, that, that's like a regional thing, and I could be mis. I could also be mispronouncing it. It all depends where you went to law school, right? I went to no law school. I'll tell you that much. Uh, so, what are the what are the next steps in this case or timelines? What what should people be expecting here? So, for the CFSA case, I think the briefing of, of the parties should be completed very soon. We've seen the amicus briefs come in on both sides, and and again, you know, we filed in support of neither party. But because of that, we filed early in May. The court will take it up in their October sitting. And at that point, you know, they have essentially until June to rule on it and come to a decision. So we'll, we'll see it in the next term. And it's one to watch, and particularly an oral argument, which may tip the hand to which way the justices are going. But a, rule, a broad ruling that the Bureau is you know, unconstitutionally funded would stop Bureau. You would think stop the actions of the Bureau largely in its tracks unless the court takes some steps to allow it to continue until Congress resolves the issue or does a narrow ruling like the one we suggest in our amicus brief. And for some context here, this would be the, the largest Supreme Court ruling impacting the mortgage industry since what case? What, what comes to mind? So I, I guess you have to go back to the previous case, the Celia Law case, where again, the same thing could have happened uh, a little if they had struck down the entire bureau rather than just saying, 
you know, the director is unconstitutionally insulated from removal. We're stripping that out of Dodd-Frank, but everything sort of goes on as usual. I mean, they could have certainly gone broader there. So that one immediately comes to mind. There's some statute of limitations in admin law cases, but given how central the CFPB is to the regulation of the mortgage industry since the passage of Dodd-Frank, it's hard to think of a case as big as this one in the last you know, five to 10 years. It's certainly of keen interest to those of us in the mortgage industry. Uh, and hopefully I'll have you back on after after there's some movement there and, and we can discuss. Yeah, no, happy, happy to break it down uh, either after the oral arguments or when the opinions come down. Awesome. Justin, really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Bets are being placed that the Fed is approaching the end of its interest rate hikes versus the knock-on effects of a China slowdown. Many don't trust China's stats, but they show that China's Q2 GDP showed soft consumption, missing year-over-year expectations, and its economic slowdown risks having ripple effects across the global economy. Growth has slowed domestically, bringing inflation down with it, but the labor market continues to be strong. Here in the U.S., the NFIB Small Business Survey, released last week, reported only 29% of respondents saying they raised prices over the last three months, significantly fewer than one year ago. Additionally, only 15% of respondents expected to add to their payrolls in the next quarter, which should help ease upwards pressure on wages as hiring becomes more focused and selective. Inflation is expected to continue to ease throughout the rest of the year, although deflation is not expected overall. The Fed continues to maintain that two more rate hikes will be appropriate this year, with the next hike expected following their meeting on July 26th. This week won't have much in the way of market-moving data. However, we will get a lot of housing data with the NAHB Housing Market Index, housing starts, and existing home sales. At this point, the Fed has all the inflation information needed to make the next interest rate decision. Keep in mind that yesterday, Russia said that it had pulled out of an agreement allowing Ukraine to export grain by sea. The deal was seen as key to keeping global food prices stable. On the subject of stability, bond market volatility has fallen to the bottom of the range associated with the current Fed tightening policy, which should go a long way towards reducing MBS spreads and push down mortgage rates. This morning, we've seen retail sales for June, which came in up 0.2%, and excluding auto, also up 0.2% versus expectations for the headline to increase 0.5% month-over-month as a previously increased 0.5% month-over-month. Later this morning brings industrial production and capacity utilization for June, business inventories for May, the NAHB housing market sentiment index for July, and remarks from Fed Vice Chair Barr. We begin Tuesday with agency MBS prices better by a quarter, and the 10-year yielding 3.75 after closing yesterday at 3.80%. The two years down to 4.67%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. I heard that a banana a day reduces your risk of colon cancer. Turns out you have to eat them. <laughs> hey, I don't pick the jokes here, so <laughs> don't don't look at me. Thanks again to Richie May, a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology and other services to the mortgage industry for almost four decades. To experience how Richie May can help you transform your mortgage business, visit richiemay.com. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. 
Visit robchristman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.